Ross? Hi. It's Rachel. I'm just calling to say that um, everything's fine. And I'm really happy for you and your cat. Who, <laughs> oh, by the way, I think you should name Michael. And, you know, you see there, I'm thinking of names, so obviously I am over you. I am over you. And that, my friend, is what they call closure. I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Oh, don't be a fuddy-duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'll never get into Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to The Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And we have reached episode 20, which means we are continuing our ongoing, highly ambitious project. What are we talking about today, Amy? Well, today in part two of our Will They, Won't They series, the tension is rising. Yeah. So if you're just joining us, you don't know what we're talking about. Every 10th episode, we are going to return to this will-they-won't-they romances study, and we've broken them down into five acts. So back in episode 10, we did act one, meet cute, and that was where we got to meet all our characters. In some cases, they were meeting each other for the first time. In some cases, they were sort of getting reacquainted from earlier in their lives, but in any case, that was kind of easy because we were starting everything out. So we picked the pilot episode of Cheers, Friends, The Office, and New Girl. Going forward, it got a little trickier. Uh, so we want to say right up front, we've done our best. We think we have managed to figure out a way to break down these long, complicated stories into these five basic beats that we're going to cover Every 10th episode. So the episodes that we're covering for this Act 2, Tension Rising, Cheers, Season 1, Episode 14, Let Me Count the Ways, Friends, Season 2, Episode 7, The One Where Ross Finds Out, The Office, Season 2, Episode 10, Christmas Party, and New Girl, Season 2, Episode 3, The Fluffer. Yeah. So with Act 2 of 5, is tension rising. I think what we need to address up front, the main challenge in narrowing this down is that if there's a will they, won't they romance at the heart of your sitcom, the tension rising is potentially the whole thing. Like that's the crux of your dynamic and what we're coming to see. So, you know, just by definition, we're sort of squeezing a square peg into a round hole by saying, what's the moment when the tension rises because really like you alluded to it's sort of in some cases you know it's it's a whole season it's multiple seasons it's it's most of the show yeah you know? with Jim and Pam the the tension rising is stretched out over multiple seasons with something like cheers they you know they talk about stretching it out over season one and it being so undeniable with something like friends it was 
you know, they were thinking of this from from jump, but they at least stretched it through like midway season two. So, you know, you you see these sitcoms making these choices, the writers and the showrunners and stuff making these choices. And in the case of New Girl, it was against their like better judgment. They didn't want Nick and Jess to get together, but the chemistry was so undeniable. Um, and, I, I, you know, I'll contend that the writing in that episode even addresses that tension. Yeah. This is the part of the story where the the feelings, the you know wh- whatever is going on, whatever is brewing, we're watching that increase before our eyes. We're watching the characters sort of discover how they feel about each other. And again, this is you know proportionally usually a huge part of the story. In some cases, it's maybe the kind of quintessential moment, but I think a lot of times, it's when it sort of reaches that boiling point. And as we discovered, even identifying that is hard because these things are designed to be drawn out and like hyper serialized. And so you're going to keep coming back again and again. And so even when it seems like the tension is finally broken and next episode, we're going to be getting, we're going to be moving on to the next part of the story. Sometimes that isn't the case. Right. These stories, they have a less straight line from the, you know, inception to the eventual get together or whatever the climax is. Because in a lot of our stories, while as a viewer, you tend to feel like the climax is going to be they get together. If you look at the long arc of these series, truly the climax becomes the breakup, which happens obviously after the get together. So we have a long period of tension rising. And that was what we chose to select as act two. And as you can kind of hear from what we're saying, act three will very likely be get togethers. Act four will be breakups. And then act five will be whatever their like resolution is when the character dynamic with the two with the two of each other tends to sort of find its close. Exactly. So Previously on the sitcom study, right, we left all of our characters with this sense of intrigue. You know, like I said, sometimes they met each other for the first time, sometimes not. But there was always this sense of like, okay, let's see what happens. So let's dive back into Cheers, right? We're in the middle of season one. This is Let Me Count the Ways, episode 14. And so, you know, what we've sort of skipped over are all these episodes where this Sam and Diane dynamic is becoming more and more clear. Right. right. We've seen lots of chemistry, lots of fighting, like the at the heart of the Sam and Diane relationship is that they're so very different. Um, you know, she is striving to be this academic and she's very intellectual and that, you know, her tastes are such in that way. And she does the thing that you mentioned about Fred Flintstone when he gets bonked on the head. She calls other people by the fancier version of their names. Yes. Yeah. She's Norm walks into the bar and everyone's like, Norm! And she's like, Norman! Yeah, no, that's very funny. And yeah, this episode in particular, I guess like many of them do, it begins with a cold open that's that sort of comic strip storytelling, its own little self-contained thing that perfectly reiterates exactly that dynamic you're talking about. It's just this simple little joke where Diane comes in and says, oh, I just got done watching this Indian film. And, you know, you guys would never, you know, oh, you wouldn't believe how enlightening it is. And of course, especially at this time in the 80s, you know, foreign films 
are this sort of hoity-toity thing that most people aren't familiar with. You know, we're a long way from even Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Parasite, all these things that have kind of crossed over. She doesn't mention Bollywood at all, even though that is to what she is referring. Right. I think we're supposed to understand she's talking about Bollywood. But of course, Poach and Sam, who she's talking to, go, oh, so you saw you saw Apache Joe or whatever. There's some, I forget what it is, Apache something. Fort Apache. Fort Apache. All of this is, uh, this is stuff of yesteryear, right? Because, you know, the whole idea of like, I'm talking about Indians, not American Indians. Like, we don't talk about any of this the same way anymore. People aren't watching movies about Native Americans the way that they were in the 80s when you were still watching John Wayne, you know, fight right. Geronimo Cowboys and whatever. Indians. That's what Coach, Coach makes the assumption that she'd gone to see a Cowboys and Indians kind of movie like that, like an old Western kind of a thing. And then, you know, Carla joins in the conversation and it goes on this wide ranging sort of, oh, but what about this? And oh, it gives me chills on my arm when this happens. And it's this wonderful little just kind of, you know, in the way that sometimes when you're talking in a group of friends, the conversation topic just the pace just keeps going and keeps going. And the person who sort of initially started the conversation doesn't ever end up getting to like tell their point or their story because it keeps going round and round. And Diane has this great moment where she just like crosses her eyes and gets all exasperated and storms off because no one cares at all about her fabulous film festival weekend of Bollywood films. Right. Which turns out to be sort of related to what comes in the body of the episode, even though the Indian film festival thing is its own little joke. The crux of this episode is going to be, I love how Diane phrases it. She says, I've made a real effort to fit into the milieu of this bar, right? Uh, so even when she's explaining that she's trying to be unpretentious and fit in with them, she has to say it in the most pretentious way. But yeah, it's all about how she doesn't fit in. And, you know, the fact that she's not on the same page as anybody and nobody, you know, tries to connect with her is uh, is taking a toll on her. She's getting frustrated by that. And she ha happens to have received a very sad phone call. So she gets a phone call from her mother at the bar and it's very obvious, you know, we only hear her side of the conversation, but someone has died. And so everyone in the bar is staring at her with this, these like big sympathetic eyes, like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Um, and she says, you know, Elizabeth is gone or something like that. And, and they're like, who, who's Elizabeth? And she was like, Elizabeth Barrett Browning was my cat. And she just breaks down and everyone's like, oh, and they go about their business, which by the way, I know a lot of blue class, like blue collar working class people. I don't know anybody who would be like, oh, your pet died. I don't care. Yeah. This whole thing with her pet is a little odd. It's a weird choice because if the function it serves in the story is for her to be upset by something that people don't sympathize with. Yeah. Like, it's it's weird to say nobody in the bar would care. It's one thing to say, oh, you acted like someone in your family died because you got a call right. for your, from your mom. So, sure, you sort of took us for a little bit of a ride there. But it's a little bit of a contrivance that everyone is so unsympathetic. While we're on the subject of her cat, this cat lived quite a long life because she's going to go on to explain the significance of the cat. And it has to do with 
in her parents' divorce or something happened when she was 12, right? right? She talks about being 12 years old. And it's not even like I got the cat when I was 12. It's like I already had an established relationship with this cat, Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Shelley Long is like 30 in this in this show. And that I, I clocked that as well. And I was like, okay, so they're definitely playing her as a grad student who's like 22, 23. Like that's where they're aiming for this. And I mean, I guess it sort of tracks, right? Because if if Sam's like a washed up relief pitcher, this was in the time before people, you know, did that late into their 30s. People retired from, you know, baseball, especially pitchers with their, you know, arms and uh, all of the ways that they were contorting them would, you know, they he, he is definitely older than her, but it could, I mean, could be by like 10 years. You yeah, know? no, that that totally makes sense. But it's just one of those things now, if you would have a character like that on TV, it would be, you know, Ariana Grande. It would be somebody so young that it looked like they just walked out of nursery school. Whereas Shelley Long, you're right, she's she's young, but she just, she seems like a woman to me. Like, she seems like an adult. And so it immediately seems strange when she's saying, yeah, my best friend was this cat when I was 12, and she just died, and now <laughs> I'm heartbroken. But anyway, yeah, that's what happens, and nobody cares. Yeah, and they're just kind of like, oh, good, you know, I'm glad it wasn't somebody important, you know, whatever. And then she kind of goes to a couple different people to try to, like, get some sympathy. Yeah. And all of them are like, yeah, I mean, I have never really had a pet. Or, like, Carla's like, yeah, I deal with my kids' pets dying all the time. You just flush them down the toilet, although a cat would be hard because you can't yeah. flush that, you know. And uh, we should say all the while, there is actually a different sort of A story going on, which is uh, very sort of adorably low stakes and fun, which is simply that this computer guy walked in in the first scene, this like... Yeah, cybernetics. Yeah. Just if you remember Maxwell Nerdstrom from the Saved by the Bell episode a few months ago, who was Tori Spelling's boyfriend, the like rich entrepreneur, high school nerd guy... This guy was like that guy 10 years older, just straight out of Revenge of the Nerds or, you know, your Rick Moranis stereotype or something. Yeah, this guy was a hunk that they had put glasses on and slicked his hair back very and made him talk like this so he sounded nerdy. But like, you take that, this is a 100% uh, Laney situation from that um, She's All That movie. Absolutely. You take his glasses off and it's like, oh, look, he's a hunk. You could tell he was just a funny character actor that they said put on some glasses and grease in your hair. But yeah, he comes in telling them about his cybernetics uh, operations. And it's just so funny. Like the, the writers of this show are obviously just as mystified by technology as Sam and the other characters are. Yeah. So this guy is rattling off, oh, my computer can do this, this, and that. And it's like a hodgepodge of things that computers could already do at that time and things that, you know, 40 years later are still like, like I noticed he says it can write poetry, you know, and that's of course all in the headlines now, artificial intelligence, writing fiction and stuff. Uh, but the, the crux of this is simply that this Marshall character tells them that the Celtics are going to lose 
uh, because his computer model has predicted it. Right. And so this was very troubling to me because no actual scientist would ever do what he did, which was he said that there's a correlation between the Celtics losing and this planet being in some sort of state or whatever. And he has this whole graph that shows that this always happens and whatever. And I was like, correlation does not equal causation. And that has been at the foundation of scientific understanding for hundreds of years. Like there is no way this guy in 1982 or whatever it is, thinks that because the computer model is showing a correlation, that equals causation. And I was just like, well, this is hokey. Yeah. No, it is a logical fallacy. It is very much the opposite of science. But All of that is just to establish this fun premise that Coach and Sam have this secret knowledge, kind of like Biff in Back to the Future 2. They have this secret knowledge of the outcome of this game, so they're going to bet against the Celtics, which is heresy in their bar. So as they're watching it with the crowd and everyone's, you know, getting enraged that the Celtics are losing, you know, Sam and Coach have their own secret little, they have to go outside and sort of secretly celebrate. And really, it's it has nothing to do with anything. I just kind of bring it up because that's the charm of this show is that they have yeah. these fun sitcom plots to kind of keep you busy so that, you know, when you get the eight minutes or so of really intense relationship stuff, you know, there's a little bit of sugar to help the medicine go. Yeah, there's lots of other stories going on. We're going to see this throughout. There's really good. And this is one of my, I think one of the reasons that these shows are so strong is that every time we have these heavy relationship episodes, the A and C or B stories that go all around them are really strong, very interesting and funny to watch. Uh, for example, in the Friends episode, we get the very beginning of the chemistry between Monica and Chandler in the episode where, you know, Ross and Rachel first kiss. So that's amazing. Yeah. So let's talk about this sort of big powerhouse final act of the episode. And I'm very curious what you think about all this. It is a very nuanced scene. And I bring up the word nuanced yeah. because uh, at some point... When when Diane is giving Sam a piece of her mind, one of her big gripes is the cologne you always wear is totally void of nuance. And I thought that was funny. <laughs> but they go to the back room and I'm going to try to sort of like recount the basic facts of this, right? It starts with Diane saying, you're not connecting with me. You're not sympathizing with me. Uh, I've been trying to tell you you know, sort of non-verbally all day that I need some some support and some, you know, sympathy, some connection, whatever. And then Sam, like, does his best to do that. And then we get Diane sort of breaking down and being like, okay, I'm going to finally, I'm going to, I'm going to cry on your shoulder, proverbially, I'm going to tell you the whole story about my cat and why it's so upsetting to me. She does it gets to Sam, he starts crying. It starts like really connecting. And then they sort of, you know, like these scenes always happen. They get closer, they embrace. He goes for the kiss. She goes, stop. That's not, you shouldn't be doing that. You're exploiting this situation. 
and he's kind of like, uh, what the hell? I'm just acting on impulse. I thought that's what what we. So that's not. We haven't even gotten to the end yet. But let's stop there. What do you think of that moment? Well, so there's so much leading up to it that you're you just want to like shake Diane when she stops him, right? Because in all these episodes before this episode, there's been this constant back and forth. Like they've already kissed, mm-hmm. you know. It was another one of these like heat of the moment kind of things, and they and they kissed, and then it was like, ah, what are we doing? No, ah, oh no. And so this moment is like. They, they've been there for each other in a couple other episodes when things went bad for Sam. So this is like, she's been there for him in the past. And yeah, so when it comes to this moment, when now he's being there for her, it parallels exactly when she was there for him and they kissed. And then he goes in for the kiss and she's like, no, we need to think about this. I think it's, it's exactly what needed to happen in terms of this is midway for them, midway through mm-hmm. season one. And so they're not quite ready to like have this go into full relationship yet. Right. So, and then also Diane and Sam, like the heart of their relationship is that they shouldn't be together and they both know it, but they can't help but want to do it anyway. Yeah. And so she's still hesitant at this point. And she's like, wait a minute. Like, if we're going to get together, it can't be. And she doesn't say exactly this, but this is like what I'm hearing in my head when she's doing it. Like, if we're going to get together, it can't be as a reaction to my cat dying. It can't be as a response to like you being upset about something else. It has to be because we've thought about it and we've made a good decision to go ahead and be together. And Sam's response is, you think too much. Yeah. Well, he also says at one point, he says, what are you accusing me of? Because she says you're exploiting the situation. And that's what makes it so tricky or part of what makes it so tricky is because Sam's, what he's sort of clinging to as his defense is that this is not premeditated. This is not, he didn't go in here going, oh, I'm going to get her all fragile and vulnerable talking about her dead cat and then make my move. His response he calls it impulse and it is like he's he's being moved to do something in this very natural organic way and i think at first he resents the accusation that it's some sort of scam but then she kind of clarifies and says well okay but the only way that you can relate to women is sex so i have a problem with the fact that when we're here together and you start feeling things and you start feeling emotionally, you know, stimulated that what that means for you is it's time to go to the bone zone, you know, and that he doesn't really have an answer for. No. And, and she not like, not just in the moment you're saying how she kind of very, very explicitly sort of pegs him for what he is. Um, she also says, you know, cause he's like, Oh, but it's just impulse. And I'm not like, uh, none of this was like, like you said, premeditated, you know, what are you accusing me? And she's like, you've never, what is it? You have never been helpless where women are involved. Like, if you only relate to something in a sexual way, if you only think of women as sexual, then that's always going to be where you go, whether or not you're choosing it or premeditating it. It's just you don't know any other way to engage. And I'm giving you an opportunity here to engage with me in a way that doesn't need to go there. We can share feelings. We can share emotions. And it doesn't need 
to go there. She does a great job at sort of setting the boundaries in a way that at the time and throughout the many seasons to come that she's on the series, they really sort of make her into a shrew because of it. But like in moments like this, she's right you know, a hundred percent. And she's setting boundaries in a healthy way with a man that she is a hundred percent attracted to. Like she wants to go there and she appreciates that he wants to go there too, but she just wants to make sure they're doing it right. And his response is you think about it too much. Yeah. Well, and you can understand how his experience, he's a product of his experience, you know, and when you hear about the sex lives of these athletes, like it is truly like just mind-blowing when they're like yes magic johnson had sex with 27 women per hour from 1988 to 1994 like they just it's it's a lifestyle that normal people cannot comprehend and so you just get the sense that yeah like he has not been asked to engage with a woman in this way, like maybe ever or in his adult life. No, they just were hoping that he would and just be a decent person. And, you know, Shelley Long's character, Diane, understands, I think, kind of all of what you're saying and is just like, yeah, but not with me. Yeah. And the way they end is great. It's sort of the opposite of what we're going to get maybe in some of the other ones where it's another one of these like, all right, we're talking again, we're talking, it's good. And, and it looks like it's going to be another kiss. And they just go like, and just kind of like turn around and like go leave the room in opposite directions, end of episode. Right. So they have, um, this is the first of three out of our four episodes will have a wonderful fight before like the the very end and so this in this one kind of following on to diane's objections that we were just talking about and how she very sort of clearly tagged sam for who he is what he is and stated her boundaries they get into this little fight which uh, these back and forth fights are so much fun when you have two characters who have great chemistry together, are good actors, and it's just, you know, they're talking on top of each other. But what always happens is we get a little reveal of one or, one or the other of the people and how they feel. So in this one, the reveal is that he hates the way, Sam hates the way Diane eats pretzels because she doesn't eat them in one bite or even two bites like a normal human. She takes them in three bites. You eat your pretzels in three bites and it drives me crazy. And it's this thing that he's revealing when he doesn't realize that he's revealing of himself how much he's watching her and how much he can't stop paying attention to the most minute activities that like about her. And so even though it's a fight, we get these like little glimpses of, oh, he is paying very close attention. And that clocks with Diane as well. Like she, her comeback to the three pretzels is the thing about the cologne because she doesn't have anything to say because she's flattered. But you could see it both ways. Like, oh, the cologne is a random throwaway thing. Or you could see it as just like you're saying, she's smelling him. She's noticing his cologne and going like, oh, come on, you could do better, buddy. Let's get some nuance. You don't have any nuance. It just beats me over the head with your manliness all the time, Sam. Yeah. And and then, like you said, it kind of culminates with they're about to kiss again. And then they're like, nope, see you later. And Diane turns and walks out of the room. Yeah. So we don't get the final kiss to sort of um, break the tension. 
But what we do get is this feeling like, okay, like it's a matter of time now. Something's got to give. They've they've passed a point of no return, you know. Right, because they already have kissed. And yeah. it was like another one of these fight that turned into a kiss. And then it was, ah, what are we doing? And then they really started sort of tugging at each other and then being mad. But then that was, they were interrupted and then that was that. So it never went anywhere. And that was a few episodes ago. So yeah. Now we're here and we'll see what happens next. Yeah. Okay. Moving on to Friends. Friends Season 2, Episode 7, The One Where Ross Finds Out. Yeah. So Friends is by far proving to be the most difficult to collapse into these uh, five acts. And I think it's the one that is the most dense with story between these two. It's almost the opposite of The Office, where you get these little dribs and drabs, you know, these little breadcrumbs sprinkled throughout each episode. With Friends, it's like, it's it's a soap opera at this point. And there's a lot of uh, changing of the tides between who knows what about how who feels about who. And so, you know, what we're officially talking about is, like you said, Season two, episode seven, the one where Ross finds out. But a lot has happened since we last checked in with these guys. Right. So at the end of Meet Cute, the the episode for Meet Cute, which was the pilot of Friends, Ross says to Rachel, you want to go out sometime? And she says, you know, or do you want to get some coffee or something sometime? She says yes. And then he never asks her out. So we get in this episode... We finally get that whole thing coming full circle. So all through season one, Ross was obsessed with Rachel and Rachel didn't know. And then the finale of season one is Rachel finding out. Right. Finding out because Joey and Chandler, Chandler specifically, sort of spilling the beans. So Ross has been yammering on about this the whole time to his buddies. This is like a thing for him that he talks about. He's completely obsessed with Rachel and he's like secretly pining away. And meanwhile, Rachel started seeing the soccer player, Paolo. Right. Um, That's something, a pattern that I think we can track with a lot of these shows is that the woman tends to be involved with a guy that's like a handsome dummy. Right. We're going to get that in New Girl. We're going to get that sort of in the office. I, that's a little debatable. You know, I, I don't think Roy would stand up to Paolo, you know, <laughs> in, in terms in, of handsomeness. <laughs> yeah. In terms of really anything, frankly. But this idea that, you know, the woman is often, you know, be, betrothed to this guy who is threatening to the guy that we like because he's more conventionally good looking or athletic or something, or he makes more money, or whatever. He's he's more strapping in some way. But there are these really obvious ways that they don't connect. Right? right. So in the case of Rachel, it's literally just a language barrier, right? The guy is just a jock from another country and he doesn't even speak English. Yeah, he's super hot. Um but then then we have like new obstacles come into play, right? So Rachel finds out end of season one that Ross has been obsessed with her. She kind of goes back and forth as to whether or not she wants to do anything about it and runs to the airport to try to stop him because he's going to China for a week, which 
blew my mind because I was like, he goes to China for a week. I really thought he was there for like the summer or something. They talk about it as though he's going for years. For, he's like, he's my like, son will forget what I look like. Yes. Take this picture and make sure you show it to my son, uh, you know, uh, every now and then, he says. Like, he's going away forever. He's going for a week. And while there, meets a woman that he comes back, like, obsessed with. I do want to talk about Julie for a second because – this is yet another way in which the, I think, relatively well-intentioned folks at Friends end up creating a scenario that really ages poorly. So one thing I noticed right off the bat with this episode as we're watching the normal coffee shop conversations, Joey and Chandler, while their characters are very distinct and unique and lovable, if you just threw this on and looked at it, you would think you were looking at twin brothers. Yeah, no, right? they absolutely. I used to say that all the they time. They have the same exact haircut. And when we watched the older episode from season one, I was like, oh, good. This time, Matthew Perry's hair is a little longer. So is Joey's. For God's sakes, send these guys to different barbers so they have some distinction between the two of them. They just, they look so similar. It, it's just, it's so striking to me. Because again, I don't want to take away, I don't want to be like, well, you could do without Harry or something. Like, they're both so good, and it seems crazy to conceive of friends without them. But my God, like, you just, you need people who look different in addition to behaving different. But my point with that is just that because you have this world where all of our characters are white, and even most of the peripheral supporting characters are white, Okay, now we're in a situation where we need to have a love interest for Ross that we want the audience to tolerate, but ultimately not be on her side, right? This is like the lady in Sleepless in Seattle that that the son, you know, immediately takes a disliking to. It's, it's that thing of we have to cast somebody who is attractive enough to be believable, a believable foil, a believable rival, but we don't want the audience to like them. And so, okay, Ross goes to China, he meets a Chinese woman. All of that makes perfect sense, and it would be fine if there was one other non-white person in the cast. But because as it is, it just comes across like, okay, how can we have a love interest that the audience is sort of like already kind of rooting against? Have her be an Asian woman. You know, like <laughs> the whole thing just rubs me the wrong way. Yeah. Well, and and I don't even I I don't remember Julie's whole backstory, but I don't even think I mean I think she's like Chinese American, right? Like is she, she doesn't have an accent. Is she like actually Chinese or did did they just meet on this dig and she is from like another university or something? Yeah, that's true. She doesn't have an accent. But my point, I would be making this point even if they didn't meet in China, it's the fact that you only bring in non-white characters when we need to be sort of like a little bit prejudiced against them. You right. Know? So all that we've been talking about has really been to sort of set the stage and say that when we pick up again with Rachel in this episode, it's jarring if you're skipping around because now the scenario you find yourself in is Rachel is hung up on Ross. And she is trying to move on from that, right? She's trying to find closure. That's the buzzword she learns in this episode. And so it really is just a wildly different thing. And I want to say, this is where you really see Jennifer Aniston's talent making all the difference, because she is able to play that 
you know, the, the thing that we take for granted that male actors can do, be kind of a putz and be all hung up on this girl and be making a fool of himself, you know, for somebody as attractive as, you know, 28-year-old Jennifer Aniston or however old she is in this, to to sell that, that she's like a fool for him now and she's all kind of scattered and down in the dumps and just, you know, it's it's surprisingly believable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, coming from her. Well, and there's that, it's an iconic scene, right? Where she is on a date with this guy that Monica has set her up with just to like go out with somebody. And Ross and Julie are going to get a cat. Yeah, that's the thing. Sometimes it's you found out the person got engaged or whatever. The two of them getting a cat is the thing that's going to like send her over the edge. Right, because she's like, well, you would... You would only get a cat with a person that you're planning on like being together. I would agree for it's a, a very long time. Step. And they aren't living together. So the like Julie is like, Yeah, he'll live, you know, the cat'll live half the time at Ross's and half the time with me. Yeah. It's you know? basically snuffing out if she was like, Oh, okay, this is weird. He met this girl, but but whatever, he's not that serious. This is sort of letting her know, like, no, if anything, he's more serious than than he should be. Right. But I want to ask you about this, this cliche of the date with the person that can't stop talking about their ex, right? There's something we see in movies and TV all the time. Is this something that you have experienced or even heard about on either side of it? Oh my God, yes. Have you not had that experience on the apps where like you go on dates with people and they- And maybe just because I'm a divorcee, like I was going out with other divorcees or something and like- it was, I have done more therapy in dates than I've ever That's been to funny. myself. See, I would have thought that, okay, maybe this happens in a little bit of a more subtle way, like they're exaggerating it for TV. To me, it just seems like basic social survival instinct would kick in, you know, and it's just like one of your basic things, like, you know, zip up your fly. Don't talk about your ex. You know, like it just <laughs> you would think. Yeah, because I, no, I haven't had that experience. It, look, breakups are really hard, and you know, there's the adage of like you get over somebody by you know getting under somebody else or whatever. And I think people take that seriously, and they just like get on the apps before they're ready. They try to go out there and date, and. It's really like I've watched friends of mine, you know, guy friends of mine do this and I'm sure girls too, but I just, you know, I date men. So that's who I've had that experience with. So look, it's hard. And sometimes your friends are sick of hearing you process. And so you go on a date and you don't have the little social alarm bells that go off in your head because you drink too much. And you sit there and you cry about your ex and it is horrible. And if you're with a nice person, like Rachel happened to be on this date, he just sort of like drank his way through it and was like, all right, whatever, you know, it is what it is. Like you said, the guy is uh, relatively understanding and just kind of like grins and bears it through the date. And he gives her the idea of closure and says, well, I don't know, I guess maybe I would I would try to call the person or something. And so she takes it as, oh, good idea. I'll call him right now. So this leads to a great time capsule, 1994 or whatever moment. There's a guy at a nearby table with a cell phone, but 
He's in the middle of a conversation. He's like on a date. It's like a man and a woman. And he's just like in the middle of a conversation on his cell phone. Yeah, douche. Yeah. And so like, but it's played strangely to me because it's sort of played like Rachel is the one being weird, which she is. But it's almost like the show doesn't seem to notice like, this guy's weird too. Like, why is he talking on a phone at dinner also? Yeah, I just sort of took it as like, she was asking, you know, like the guy who had the phone is like the douchiest guy around. And yeah, like his date doesn't seem to care that he's on the phone. She's just sort of like, just get off your call and give it to that girl because she's weird and she's asking and she's clearly drunk. But yeah, the idea of asking for a stranger's phone because you don't have one and that way she doesn't have to like get up and go to the bar or whatever. The idea that she knows Ross's phone number because who the hell knows anyone's phone numbers yeah. anyway? Like, I don't know your phone number. No, I am like, I would be shit out of luck if yeah. I get stranded somewhere with a dead phone because I don't know anyone's phone number anymore. So... She asks this guy for the phone. He gives it to her, like, haltingly. She makes the call and leaves a voicemail, and we get the, you know, great line. And that, my dear friend, is what we call closure. Closure. And she closes the phone and drops it in the ice bucket. <laughs> yeah. No, it's great. That I mean, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like, Aniston, you know... The thing of, oh, I'm going to make a phone call and be drunk and sort of weirdly empowered. Like, this is not the most original concept in the world. Sure. Like all our friends. And she just totally sells it. It's elevated by how good they are. And so this leads to a situation where the next morning when Ross stops by, she's completely (laughs) forgotten about doing this. And I do have to say, as a former heavy drinker, this really connected with me the moment the chill that goes down your spine when you remember something that you said or did to somebody that you had forgotten about um it's it's something i'm glad i don't have to deal with anymore and so when ross comes he says oh can i check my messages from your phone and she has no recollection of even calling him at first. And so she's like, sure. And this leads to one of, I think, the most, you know, probably top five iconic friends visual moments, right? Yeah. She like runs from her bedroom door, jumps over the couch, grabs onto him and tries to take the phone away, but it's too late. So she's on him like piggyback style yeah. the whole time that he's listening to the message. And it, and it, you know, leads to one of the most iconic lines where he says, you were over me? When were you under me? And her, like, you want to talk about Jennifer Aniston's awesome acting. Like, I feel like the, um, like, just the shame and anxiety and embarrassment and all of that in that moment. She's like, she, you know, gets back down and like goes over to the couch and tries to curl up in a ball and can't even curl up in a ball because she's just too embarrassed. She's like, her whole body is just like, no, 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 this isn't happening. It's so good. Like watching it, you want to do that same motion. Like you feel that like, no, 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 no. But then Schwimmer is right there with her, with his confusion. She says something like, well, Chandler told me. And he goes, oh, when did he, when did he, when did he? (laughs) It's just this like really great delivery that couldn't have possibly been scripted. 
yeah, you really see how this cast is just like at the top of their game, and yeah. you know this this is why the show was what it was. It's that whole scene where they like both are sort of shattered and embarrassed. And have realized that the other one knows a thing, but also that they know the thing. And so it's like, none, like neither of them know what to do. And so they're just like, okay, well, what now? Well, um, oh, and so you like me? Okay. And then the buzzer rings and it's Julie downstairs because they're going to go get the cat. And he's like, and you know, David Schwimmer's like, I'm going to go get a cat. And she's like, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. And then they just say goodbye. And it's like, they have zero capacity to be able to talk about their actual feelings. They're so embarrassed. I'm like, I'm a little bit like, maybe these two shouldn't date like Mm -hmm. anyone because they are not emotionally capable. Well, and they're, they're also just trying to cope with the weird dilemma that they put themselves in, you know, Ross, especially like, you know, as a viewer, you really feel for him because he's got this this bizarre choice to make all of a sudden and you feel for Rachel too because she didn't want to put him in this situation and her attitude has always been like well I'm it was my mistake to not you know show my feelings or whatever at at the appropriate time so I'm going to keep it a secret to not complicate his life and she's failed in doing that I guess what I was struck by with this whole sort of Sophie's choice that Ross faces now of like, well, there's the woman I've always loved and I sort of forced myself to get over and there's the new woman. And now I have to choose between the old woman and the new woman. It's like in the movies and on TV, we always want the original person. It's always set up like that. You know, you always want to go back to the original, back to the person. Oh, they were, they were with you the whole time. And you were these kindred spirits ever since you were kids or ever since you were teenagers or whatever. But the truth is in real life, I think most of the time that's a damaging impulse because it's arguing against growth. You know, it's arguing against change. And the truth is nine times out of 10, if you're hung up on someone from high school, and then you meet a new person here and now that you connect with, that's going to be the better person, you know, not the person that you're hung up on from high school. And that's why they have to load the dice by having Jennifer Aniston, you know, against whoever this poor soul is that plays Julie. And so, yeah, it just occurred to me, you know, in different ways, you see this dynamic, not even necessarily in these other particular shows, but you see it a lot in movies and stuff. And it sort of struck me that narratively, it's always more interesting to go backwards in a sense, to go back to the original, but in real life, you don't usually want to do that. Right. And I will, I will say that I think that's exactly the issue that Ross and Rachel have in their first incarnation, right? This, you know, first sort of time they get together, that is a huge issue that Ross has, you know, he gets a lot of hate now for being just like a horribly shitty boyfriend. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that he has idealized this girl since he was a child, since he was like a teenager, right? He has put her up on this pedestal. He isn't dating actual Rachel. He's dating his idealized version of her. And there's nothing that she can do to live up to that. 
ever. And a lot of the tension that happens and the reason I, I I think that they break up in that first that first time is that she's like, who do you think you're dating? Like, I'm me. And he just doesn't he can't see her for her because he won't let go of this imaginary Rachel he's created and is trying to force her to be. And I think that's very true, whether it's in a go back to the original kind of relationship, like you said, those are pretty damaging. But I think that's true in relationships in general. It's, you know, like I definitely am guilty of that being that person who is like, oh, you know, I see the best in you and you could be this. And it's like, yeah, but I'm not that. So like, maybe just get to know me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I would argue, you know, once once you're in that situation where one person is, you know, has these intense feelings for the other person and it hasn't come out of any real life experience or connection, it's just come out of some sort of admiration or some sort of one-sided affection, you're sort of already screwed, you yeah. know? Like there are times I'm sure where that can work out. But certainly in my experience and the experience of the people around me, I feel like it really, the most successful relationships happen sort of like quickly, directly, organically. There is not this, oh, I had a crush on her for four years and then I finally made my move. Right. Like we said in the initial meet cute episodes, these long protracted will they won't they's tend to lead to horribly toxic relationships that don't actually last. So we're starting to get that particularly, um, you know, from these couples. And we see it in the Sam and Diane with the fact that they are always fighting and Diane's recognizing that and trying to say, you know, we need to think more carefully before before we jump into this. And in this one, we're seeing it in just like them, not at all. Like you said, they're operatic in their ways of their emotions for each other. And so they're just really not at all getting into the minutia or the nuance of the reasons this might be a bad idea. Yeah. And so what happens is I guess, you know, later that evening, after some time has passed, Rachel is closing up at the coffee shop, we get another super iconic scene. Ross comes to the window or whatever. She lets him in. And in a sense, we have a similar but notably different scene with Sam and Diane. We get fighting. We get tenderness. Uh, what happens? All right. So Rachel's closing up. Ross comes in and surprised, like she turns around and he's there. And then, uh, well, fun fact, this is the first episode where we hear Gunther's name. She says, good night, Gunther. That's funny. So up until this point, he was nameless. But so um, she says, good night, Gunther, and then turns around, goes about cleaning up and Ross comes in. She turns back around. There's Ross. And you think there's going to be this like moment, right? Well, instead, they get into a fight because that's what these will they won't they couples do. Um, Ross is very mad at Rachel for having not told him and telling him now, now that he's happy. He's taking, and this is yet another reason I think he gets so much flack. Like, fuck you, Ross. You don't get to get mad at her because she didn't tell you 
until now and now it's messing up your new thing screw you you like you made your own decisions no so he's all like pissed at her and she's like fuck off (laughs) you know what i mean like i didn't tell you because i didn't want to mess up this thing so you know whatever it is what it is and you go get your cat and live your life and do whatever you want but it's also worth noting alcohol plays a role in this and we're going to see this in various forms, in various parts of these different stories. And alcohol is an interesting narrative device because it allows you to have characters do things and not do them, right? Right. So it's telling that she only told Ross because she was drunk. And it's just something, I don't know, it's just something I took note of that for us, the audience, it creates... It creates this situation where it's more of like a dilemma that they have found themselves in as Mm -hmm. opposed to something that they did to each other. Because if she truly had her choice, she knows that it it would probably be better if she hadn't told him. Right. And and that's I think you're exactly right on that. Right. So she got drunk when she was out on this date and she calls Ross to like leave him a message about closure or whatever. And in doing so reveals that she had liked him at one point. And I don't think she called thinking she was trying to reveal herself. I think she called being like, you know, that's it. We're good, whatever. And then it just all blurted out because she was drunk. So they both have a little argument about how they weren't being open with each other. They were hiding their feelings and how both of them are wrong for that. And um, and he's like, well, you've messed everything up now. And so what we don't see in the episode that aired, but is on the DVD extras and season two is a deleted scene where Ross and Julie go to get the cat and he freaks out and they break up. Yeah. So they they get into this fight and it's one of those things like it just shows you the the waves and crests of emotions, you know, because they don't resolve it necessarily it's more like they just kind of go to their corners you know which means him physically leaving the restaurant right they blurt out all the things like the things that in that scene where she jumps over the couch and he finds out that they couldn't say because they were being very like uh oh you and i and they were like too embarrassed because the other one knew now it's all coming out and it's like it's all coming out really fast yeah. and sort of angry, but then that immediately dissipates, right? Like it's a, it's a fight that's not really a fight. It's just there, you can tell that they're, um, having this reaction to being so embarrassed, right? Yeah. So, and also you've made, there's, I, I have this difficult choice to make now right. because of you. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, Ross has, is like, you know, why didn't you tell me before? And she was like, me, why didn't I tell you? You, why didn't you tell me? And he's like, well, there was just never the right time. There was Italian guys and this and that. And she's like, we hung out every night for a year, for a year, which was, you know, I mean, the entire first season, right? Like, and every, you know, all the guys knew. So like, it's, and it was very obvious. So again, Rachel's right. Like, why the hell didn't you tell me? And also... Uh, sorry, I didn't tell you, you know, whatever. And so he storms off because they're just going to go back to their corners and not share their feelings anymore, which is what Rachel says she's like annoyed at. She's like, fine, you just want to bury your feelings? Go bury your feelings. That that worked out so well for us before. Bye. And he leaves and then immediately comes back. Um, and she now that's that iconic scene where she goes over and has to like re yeah she like, struggles with the, the door because there's like five different locks on the door and he's like try the bottom yeah that and is that that is really well done i think yes it because is because it's 
it's easy to say, oh, we want it to be serious, but also a little funny. They really nail that thing of, you know, the scene is so long and quiet and drawn out and it does get super cheesy at the end when they come in with the music and stuff. Which was supposed to be a U2 song that they couldn't get the rights to the clearance for With or Without You before the episode aired. So it's just this song that sort of sounds like U2. it's a sound-alike. It definitely has that 90s pop rock style. But, But that moment of... You know, that long sort of smoldering silence being kind of punctured by the struggle with the door is it's like just the right enough of subversion of the, you know, steaminess. Yeah, we get one more laugh before we get the 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 real first kiss. Right. So, again, in the long story of their will they won't they relationship thus far, the tension has been rising since that very first episode. And uh, Rachel at one point even says after she finds out that Ross likes her, she's like, well, I mean, he, uh, when I, you know, when I first met him or when, you know, when I first moved to New York, he asked if I wanted to go out, but then he never did. And they never followed up, which was my point at the beginning. It was like, he's, she said, yes. Why does he never ask her? And he goes this whole time pining away and she's already given him the yes. Like Ross, you suck. One more nail in your coffin, dumbass. So they have already kissed. They kissed in the laundry, like when he teaches her how to do her laundry. They have like just a little quick kiss, like it's more like a thank you. But he's like, oh, my goodness. And then um, they kiss in her fantasy at the end of season one. She, you know, is imagining this conversation with him before she decides to try to meet him at the airport and sees him with Julie. And so they kiss in her fantasy. But this is like their real first kiss like i like you you like me we're kissing yes and this is like let's get the uh you know yandabant special lens on the camera let's do some extra you know extra effort in the lighting and everything like this is just a very you know it's it's cinematic it's very it's surprising to me that this isn't a season finale but it's very much set just like we said with the first episode you know it's it's very much designed to make you feel like, okay, this is it. Bring it on. Here we go. And of course, that's not what happens. And they continue to sort of limp along. But uh, yeah. Only for about seven more episodes. Sure. Like we're going to limp along until we get uh, to, I think it's like episode 14 of this season. And Mm -hmm. that's the one with the prom video, which will be the probably the next thing we talk about when we do the get togethers. Yeah. But at this point, you're seeing them like full on make out. You're thinking like, this is very much a step in the right direction. The exact opposite of Sam and Diane, you know, almost doing this and deciding not to. Right. And so, yeah, I think we'll, uh, we'll leave them there for now. We'll leave them there for now. All right. Until we see them again. Yeah. Moving on to The Office. Season two, episode 10, Christmas Party. This is the first office Christmas party and they'll do they'll do a Christmas episode I think every season except one from here on out because it was yeah. really popular. Yeah. And the office, you know, as a workplace thing, uh yeah, they follow along with the holidays. They do a Halloween episode almost every year. So we're in season two now, but we're definitely still in cringe territory a little bit with the office. We haven't 
completed that transition to the more humanist sort of uplifting version that we'll get in the later right. seasons. Yeah, Michael's definitely still an asshole a la Ricky Gervais um, yeah, in we terms get of that A funny little cold open, again, that, that comic strip storytelling, those funny little self-contained things. I guess it's not completely self-contained. They're bringing in the tree. Michael and Dwight are hauling in the tree. I just wrote down, I thought it was a hilarious little moment when Dwight goes, Michael, I've got a splinter. And Michael says, suck it up, Dwight. We've all got problems. But yeah, they're lugging in the Christmas tree. And that sort of sets, you know, sets up the story for the rest of the episode. This is going to be a Christmas party episode. We're going to have the usual hijinks with the party planning committee. That's always a funny thing. But what this is going to focus on and what I think is a cause of anxiety for some of us in real life with the office Christmas parties, the secret Santa, right? The gift exchange, the white elephant, Yankee swap, whatever you want to call it. What is your experience or what are your feelings about workplace Christmas parties and the whole thing about having to buy a present for somebody? Does that cause you any stress to have to get the good present but stay in the the guidelines or whatever you don't know i just fucking hate them so i have opted out for many years of the you know celebrations whatever holiday gift exchange or whatever it's going to be that my work does and maybe i'm a scrooge but i just there was a time in my life where i was like the leader of the party planning committee and i was like Okay, this we're gonna have so much fun and yeah 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 and i absolutely 100 percent will still do that with like my friends and i love to be the party planner like when i'm in a cast i love to like plan the cast party and like plan fun things for the group of friends to do but my colleagues can go fuck themselves <laughs> yeah uh i don't necessarily have the same disdain for it but i agree it's uh it's Awkward and lame most of the time because, uh, for the reason you just said, you're buying a present for someone you don't know that well. So you try to buy some sort of innocuous thing. You know, I haven't had to deal with this in years. I'm a freelancer now. I work from home, but for many years I worked in, in jobs and it was a source of stress for me simply because of my sort of people pleasing instincts and also my sort of like flair for showmanship, as it were. It's like, if this is going to be not only a public present. It yeah, needs exactly. To be good. This is something that everyone's going to see. I just, I don't want the person to have to give me the polite little smile and say, oh, this is nice. I want to be the one that did the thing that was the hit, you know? So I would design t-shirts specially made for that person and have them printed out. I would do not as romantic or sentimental say, like you, as uh, what Jim does. Jeez, you're giving teapots. And I wouldn't go as over the top financially as Michael does, right. but I would do a little bit of both. I would always spend more money than I was supposed to. I would always put in maybe a slightly inappropriate amount of effort into it. A lot of times my thing would be multiple things. It'll be like, I'll get a, a bottle of wine and a funny little joke thing or something that if there's more than one thing, it takes the pressure off of any particular item and I won't be as nervous. So that's the key aspect of this story. You know, there's all kinds of funny stuff going on in the periphery. You know, this person's got, you know, got such and such for this person. But of course, the big thing at the center is that Jim has drawn Pam 
for Secret Santa. And he's going to give her the teapot. That is what I remember about this episode. This was still when I was watching The Office. So this is before I kind of fell off of it in later seasons. And I just, I mean, I just remember like the minute we started doing research for this, I was like the teapot episode. It has to be the teapot episode. Yeah, I completely agree. I think you could argue this is one of the most successful articulations of characters, you know, getting together, being interested in each other, expressing their feelings. The the way that this relationship is drawn and this device of the teapot and the little presents and stuff is really, really well done. And you see the way that it's a response to Ross and Rachel because Ross and Rachel and Sam and Diane, that was really well done too in its own way. But I think Ricky Gervais and now, you know, Greg Michael Daniels Schur and, and yeah, yeah, the guys behind this this new one are like, we're not going to do that. We're not going to have a story about adults that go around talking about how much they have a crush on each other as though they were in high school. We're going to have a, a show about people living their lives and we see those little glimpses. And maybe Jim does have a Joey and Chandler that he's going home and, you know, yakking to them about how much he has a crush on Pam, but we don't get to see that. We just Well, get and to we see- do see a little bit of it, right? Because he has a little bit of that with the camera crew at yeah. this point. He he is sharing his gift with the camera crew and saying, you know, and this is we get another of this, like he's paying so much attention to her and all of her little things. Like two years ago she accidentally put hot sauce uh, instead of ketchup on a hot dog, and I saved the other two packets because I thought it was so funny. Right, or so, I cut my picture out of my yearbook because it gave her a chuckle. Because it made her laugh, right? So he has all of these things that it's like, it's very clear that he is paying attention to her. And when she opens it, eventually at the end of the episode, she too realizes that. But the other thing that happens is that he has the, he has a letter, a card that goes along with it. And he says, you know, because it's Christmas. So you tell people how you feel, which is, you know, from love actually. Mm -hmm. So they are a thousand percent like going for that rom-commy thing there where Jim is like, I'm going to do the thing. I'm going to make the confession of feelings because it's Christmas and, you know, Christmas, you say how you feel. And then after all the shenanigans of the secret Santa turning into a Yankee swap, white elephant, whatever anybody wants to call it, um, then he changes his mind. And as she's opening the present, she, you know, through all the machinations, she decides that she does want that one and she gets it. And he kind of grabs the card as she's opening the teapot to look inside at the bonus gifts inside and puts the card in his back pocket. And so now, and we see that shot happen. So now we know he's not going to, he's not going to explicitly share with her his feelings, but the very next episode is booze cruise. Right. In which, uh, yeah, there's, there's another development, but yeah, he makes the choice that I'm going to give her all of these little knickknacks that sort of celebrate our inside jokes and everything. But yeah, I'm not going to give her the letter. Now, I just want to ask you what you think about this whole deal. Because looking at this now, Jim's a little bit of an interloper, right? You know, we should say the the contrast to him, of course, is Roy. That That's Pam's fiance. And just like all of these guys, 
we're not supposed to like Roy, right? Roy is the Baxter. Roy is the guy that we want her to break up with. And he makes an appearance here. You know, the the aspect of the story we're sort of glossing over is that Michael bought this expensive iPod because he sort of has a man crush on Ryan. Well, he did what you did. He wanted to win Secret Santa. And so there's this $400 iPod being passed around this, you know, game of Secret Santa that has turned into White Elephant, blah, blah, blah. And so during this middle section, when Pam has control of the iPod, when it seems like that's going to be her present and Jim didn't get to give her the teapot and he's all upset about that, Roy comes in and is kind of like, oh, cool, you got an iPad? Great. Now I don't have to get you anything. And she says, oh, so what'll get me instead? I don't know, some sweater. So it's all just reinforcing this idea Roy is an underachiever of a boyfriend, and he doesn't care that much. And it's funny, looking back at it now, yeah, I'm still on Team Jim. I don't think that Pam should have stayed with Roy. But you see how there's a little bit of an unfair comparison going on here, because a lot of what Roy does is the sort of the taking for granted and the lapsing of effort that happens when people are together for a while. And you're contrasting that with the extreme overachieving, uh, you know, highly motivated behavior of somebody who's on the outside of the relationship looking to make a good impression. Right. We should compare uh, Roy's present effort uh, this Christmas with say Jim and Pam uh, after they had a, like right. one or Season two kids, or right? Something. And then say, what presents are we? Are, is he getting her for Christmas? Then um, you know, probably some sweaters. Uh- <laughs> yeah. So I guess what struck me was a Roy being a little bit cavalier and going like, "Oh, cool, that saved me some money." Really, isn't the worst thing in the world. But obviously, it's supposed to stand in sharp contrast to Jim and all the effort that he's putting in. But the second part of it is, is Jim overstepping? Like, I was asking myself how I would feel if you came home from a work event and were like, so my straight male colleague, who's about the same age as me, gave me this teapot because I mentioned how I want to get into tea. But it's not just that. He gave me his high school yearbook picture because I thought that was funny. He gave me, you know, two or three other little trinkets that reminded me of funny experiences that we had together. I think I am not a jealous man. <laughs> I think I would be saying, you do realize that this guy is trying to to get in your pants. So this right? guy's totally into you. Yeah. And I think that we see that dynamic kind of play out going forward in Ray's Roy's frustration, right? So and we saw it a little bit in the very first episode as well. He knows that they have like work crushes on each other and he knows that Jim is single and he is not having it. Like as much as he's not willing to be a better boyfriend, he also totally gets that there is something going on there and is just like, whatever, you know what I mean? Like she's like, like he has enough confidence in himself that he's like, you know, that guy's going to try, but she's not going to leave yeah. me. Well, he even says at one point to Jim in some random other episode, he says, oh, I'm glad that you guys have this connection at work. So, you know, she has somebody to talk to and I don't have to listen to the yammer and all the time. Yeah. But so what is so clear about this is that 
Jim is casting himself in the role of the fluffer in the parlance of New Girl. He is right. He is very willingly throwing himself into this situation of being her emotional boyfriend while the boyfriend gets to be the boyfriend boyfriend. Yeah. And that's one of these like be her, you know, it's like, oh, these guys, that's why Jim gets all the criticism now about being like a nice guy in quotes, because had Pam and there are several episodes where this kind of happens, right? Where like if Pam decides not to be with him, then he's like the nice guy who finishes last. And it's like, no, dude, you are actively trying to break up her relationship. And you are acting in ways that once you're together, you're not that charming. Yeah. And it's, I guess what I would say is that most of the time, I think he's on the right side of that. And sure. most of what you're seeing is him being very sort of appropriate. Like that's what makes Jim. The character that he is, I think, is whether it's with the goofy work stuff with Michael and Dwight or the romantic stuff, he's a very competent, appropriate person in contrast to most of the other characters. But that's why this was so striking to me is because this was an example of him overstepping. And it's interesting how he makes the decision that the note would be overstepping, but not the neti pot or whatever. It's not, not a neti room. pot. It yeah. is an actual teapot. The reason he gets upset is that Dwight right, ends up with it. And Dwight pot. says he's going to use it as a neti pot. And right. he's like, I can't, I can't even with this thing that I put so much thought into. But no, I, I absolutely agree. I think that it's, it is fascinating that, that Jim's takeaway on this is it's overstepping to tell her how I feel, but not to show her how I feel with right. the, which is what this present does. And then in the very next episode, he does say how he feels. And then when she doesn't immediately break up with Roy and get with him, he pieces out and goes to a different branch and runs away. Like he is being a big baby. And, and I think the criticism that has come to, you know, the gym of it all in the years since is mostly warranted. Right. And, but that being said, I also think Jim and Pam are a good fit. So they have their trials and tribulations, um, but I do like them as a as a couple. Yeah, I, like I said, the show does such a good job of establishing these characters connect because of their sense of humor. And so we can harness all of the talent of our writing staff and come up with all this funny stuff for them to react to and for them to experience and it just does that in a way that's a little bit different than you you've ever seen before. He's seeing it all from his vantage point and his story instead of like considering her point of view. And so I think that's why at the end of season two, it's like when she rejects him, it's like, well, this story is over for me now. And, you know, there isn't that same sense of like, Ross and Rachel, what kind of dilemma am I creating for her? Right. And because it's a workplace comedy, he has the option of piecing out, right? Like when Ross and Rachel and um, Nick and Jess have their issues, there's there's nowhere to go. Like they hang out with the same people like that, or they live in the same apartment. You know what I mean? So they can't get away from each other in the same way that Jim and Pam have that 
you know, that ability to, you know, when Jim realizes he's overstepped, he's like, I need to get myself out of the situation. Right. And what we get as far as, you know, closure or resolution in this episode, I think is Ham's talking head where she's looking at the camera with tears in her eyes, holding the little teapot. And she says, I made the right choice. And that's, you know, again, this isn't going to be the operatic leaps of friends. This is going to be little baby steps, right? So we're getting a little baby step that says, okay, it's becoming more and more clear to me that this guy is paying a lot of attention to me and that maybe this is a better thing. Yeah. Okay. Moving on to New Girl. New Girl, season two, episode three, The Fluffer. Can I just say, the talent. Yeah. This show is so good. Look, and we, you know, I think we did a really good job kind of picking the four couples and picking four shows that are strong. You know, we don't have any of the, there were definitely other candidates for Will They, Won't They for this series. But, you know, we purposefully picked these kind of cultural touchstone TV shows. And New Girl doesn't really have that like cheers, friends status. But holy hell, should it? This show is so good. Yeah, it's really, really funny. I think what I appreciate now watching it compared to some of the other shows of the same time is it gets a little bit of that early 2000s style with the cutaways and whatnot, but it's not as manic as some of the others. And yeah, the way it learns from the examples of Friends and Seinfeld and just sort of continues to build on them and starts loosening the tropes and the archetypes and just just as, yeah, the really, really good actors and writing. The other thing I want to say right off the bat about this episode so 2012, it just, it begins with Nick telling Jess, you're a big girl, you can watch The Walking Dead by yourself. And I immediately go, oh, The Walking Dead, 2012. And then we're going to get a whole B story about Schmidt pretending to be Tug Romney, <laughs> the non-existent Romney kid. It's just so funny that, you know. It's great. Oh, wait, we also, so 2012, we have... Schmidt being obsessed with Kanye. The reason yeah. he gets mistaken for a Romney in the first place is that he's wearing a belt that has whales on it and like pink stripes because Kanye wore it. And he goes to this event because he hears Kanye is going to be there. And so, it, and I, I wrote in my notes, I was like, weirdly tracks that Schmidt is obsessed with Kanye, yeah. both then and now. Definitely. So we're mired in another situation where we have the woman uh, betrothed to a handsome dummy, right? So this Sam guy, he's not as out of it maybe as as Paolo, uh, but he's presented as this sort of pretty boy that she doesn't connect with. And she almost considers it like a rite of passage to have this like purely sexual relationship with no substance to it. Right. And that's how they've set it up. So like this guy, she only knows that he's hot and that he doesn't want commitment. But we do find out later subsequently that he's like this actually wonderful, very intelligent person. He's 
He's like a handsome doctor. Uh, he's a, like a pediatrician or whatever. He's like a, or like a, he's a pediatric oncologist or yeah. something. And he does all this charity work. So, yeah. So Nick has found himself in this situation that this show, they have their own way of saying it. It's, it's interesting because in my day, we just called it being in the friend zone or, you know, sometimes you might say having an emotional affair with somebody or something like this. But that's not exactly what this is. Well, and I think that's why they feel like they have to define a term for it in a different kind of vocabulary, right? Because Zoe Deschanel, her whole, like, since we've last seen New Girl, right, uh, the very first episode, she has gone through season one of trying to, like, get over the ex-boyfriend, get out there and date again. She dates one of her teacher friends, like a colleague at work, and then that kind of fizzles out. So now she's had, like, another break up and she just she doesn't want to uh, get into anything serious and Schmidt and all the guys really not so much Nick but Schmidt and Winston are like hey you just need to like have a casual thing you know you just need to hook up with somebody and let it just be a hookup and not fall madly in love with the guy and not get you know serious uh, you know stop being a serial monogamous just try something casual and she's like yeah i can do that i can do that and schmidt's the one that sets this, sets this all up he's like so here's what we're going to do we're going to all go out together and take you on a date just us loft friends and we're going to have a good time and then you're going to go call the guy at the end of the night and have like you know you are you up kind of a like yes. a hookup right you up and so she's like that's a great idea but then this Kanye thing happens and so Schmidt takes Winston to this other event because he wants to look like he has black friends so Kanye will think he's cool and doesn't show up to this date that's supposed to be like a friend hang so that she can get all of her like fun, you know, I'm hanging out and I'm having a good time energy going before she goes and hooks up with the guy because she tried to hook up with him just without any of that. And it didn't, it wasn't working. She just was like, we just ended up lying there talking because I just couldn't do it. Right. So this was all Schmidt's idea. Yeah. I guess the specific wrinkle that the show is trying to add is that Jess needs some sort of engagement or connection in order to be aroused, in order to enjoy sex. And so just in case you're like Jess and don't know what a fluffer is, it's, you know, the person on the porn set that's supposed to like late or like in other ways stimulate the actors so they're they're ready to go when it's time and right? when nick explains to jess what a fluffer is he has this wonderful hand gesture that sort of starts from his belt and he goes up like he's just you know gesturing that the you know it's keeping the person aroused but he doesn't he doesn't even say the word aroused right he says keep him stimulated he says or something motivated motivated yeah. and so he he takes his hand like from his belt area Area, sort of up and then around in a circle yeah. so that it like doesn't really right. it fully looks like a turn. Belly yeah it almost. doesn't really fully turn into like the aroused penis he's referring to but it's so funny it's like he starts to make the gesture and then makes it a circle and says motivated and i just cracked up it was so funny right. and of course jess says ew that's a job because why would she know about that but yeah what they're trying to say is that 
she needs some engagement and some connection in order to sleep with him. And since she can't get it from him, she's going to get it from Nick. Well, she's going to get it from the group of guys. That was the original idea. But then it turns out that just Nick is there. But as this plays out, what they keep pointing out to him, like regardless of how it started, he he takes on this role yes. in, in her life of now he's he's doing this for her all the time. Right. You know, and that's what I mean when I say that it's basically a variation on he's in the friend zone or he's her emotional whatever. They have this specific aspect of it that he needs it for sex. And I think that's how they kind of set it apart from your standard situation. Yes, that's how like it all sort of it comes to a head, I think, in this episode. But all of a, a lot of the instances that they're referring to when Winston is like, dude, you have to stop doing this. Uh, it's instances from other episodes yeah. in the, the ways that they have become friends. And I kind of like how they sort of, at the end of the episode, they have this conversation and kind of lay out the rules. So like Winston has sort of earlier laid out the rules of like what a fluffer is and does and how Nick is doing it. And then at the end, when he has explained it to Jess and they, they have the argument and, you know, and then he ends up kind of doing the thing that he wasn't supposed to do in the first place, which is build this dresser. Yeah. Because they've gone on an, an Ikea, like they've gone on a trip to Ikea, but not the close Ikea, the two Ikeas away Ikea, because the close one doesn't have it, blah, 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 blah. So it's like another way that he's just there for her. And Winston's laid out these rules. He's like, okay, as a friend, you do not pick someone up from the airport. You do not build furniture for them. And you do not listen to Adele. Do you agree or disagree with these rules of friendship. Yeah. And Jess has had that exact same conversation with her guy because she asks Sam, her boyfriend, she's like, hypothetically, would you do these things for someone if they weren't your girlfriend? Like, is there any circumstances in which you would? And he's basically like, is it a Make-A-Wish Foundation thing? Is it because they're a licensed carpenter and I need their help? Like, he can't even compute the idea. Right. He so says he the tells only me. situation in which I would do this for someone is not even dating. It's marriage. Yeah. He's like, I am not building furniture for anyone. Right. So Jess and Nick are both learning from their respective Years that their relationship is considered weird and inappropriate. Right. And they, at the very end, they have the conversation where Nick's just like, look, I don't want anybody else to define what we can and cannot do for each other or what we can and cannot be to each other. And that's where this one is different in terms of like it being uh, the tension rising moment because both of them kind of acknowledge their feelings in this and say, yeah, so we're friends that are attracted to one another and we live together and like we're just going to have to figure it out because Nick's like I'm not going to stop building furniture for you and I don't want anybody to tell me that I can't but also if you need to go on a date with somebody before you have sex with them I don't need to be that person you should just do me a favor go on a date with the guy that you're going to have sex with. Yeah, he basically says, like, look, we don't have to, you know, totally kowtow to everyone and say, like, we're not going to be friends anymore. We're free to do whatever we want. But they've got a point. You know, your relationship with me should not be connected to sex 
at all. You shouldn't right. be depending on my friendship to screw your boyfriend. That's weird. Yeah. And so, yeah, it is a little bit of like, we're going to pop the bubble for now. You know, the wave of tension is going to kind of crest over, but there's definitely a sense of like dot, 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 we'll, we'll be back to this. Right. And they even say that they're because they have this, again, we get, this is the third fight. We don't get a fight in the office, but all the, our, our other couples have a fight and their fight is the best one. It is so well-written. They are just like talking over each other the entire time. They're, um, you know, Nick has explained to Jess what a fluffer is and yeah. how he feels like that's what she's making what him said, into. He says, I'm your boyfriend without the rewards. And she's like, do you want the rewards? Have you thought about the rewards? And you can see like her eyes light up and she grins. Yeah. Just the phrase, just the word rewards. Yeah. And she's like, what? Yeah. Right. And so, and so he's like, no, and she's like, don't say blah. What the hell are you doing? Like, don't do that. And it was this really another of these wonderful scenes where they just got to have fun together and um, play off that chemistry that, the writers didn't want to write for, you yeah. know, and, um, and so, or the show creators didn't want to have happened so soon. And so they have a great little exchange where she walks in and he's like, uh, because she looks gorgeous. And then she's like, what? And he's like, I'm sorry, I'm just used to you looking like the loft troll. Yeah. And <laughs> like does this whole bit about how she's this like gross troll in sweatpants all the time. Well, and it's also really funny the way they establish when when Jess finally admits like you know I've thought about you romantically oh, I love too. That too and I she's well that. I know this is this is definitely something that you related to I feel like because 100% Nick is like when were you attracted to me and we do get the little flashback and it's a moment <laughs> when she catches him she's sitting at his bar and she catches him doing some silly little voice or song or He's something. He's making up a little story about the cashews talking to each other. Right. And like, you know, making nut puns about the cashews. Yeah. Like, like Bob hey, and Bob's Hey, man, you're nuts. And like eats one. Yeah. It's and so that cute. was the moment when she sees that and is like, oh, hey, maybe I haven't been uh, giving this guy a fair shake. And I am on the other side of the TV looking at Zoe Deschanel watching... <laughs> Nick do this and I too am falling in love with Nick I'm like that's so freaking cute so the way this one ends Nick gives her as his sort of like symbolic blessing he gives her his mix CD because that's the original his fluffer. sexy mix right he's yeah. like by by giving you this and this is something I, I can kind of relate to it's like th this is me saying like I'm officially on board with your relationship like right. I want to help you have a good sex life just not in this weird way that I have been and so it ends, of course, with this great scene where he's in the hallway kind of eavesdropping on what's going on in Jess's room. And you hear those opening bars of call me Al. <laughs> bam, bam, bam. And he just starts like grooving and dancing. And it's very da, funny. Da, 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 da. Yes. Um, and he like grooves and dances. And that's the very end of the episode. So what they basically decide is they're going to have a relationship that blurs lines and that's where they are and they're not going to try and figure anything else out. But the reason this to me is sort of like a quintessential Nick and Jess moment in the tension rising is that they both say out loud that they're attracted to one another and it's okay. 
So we don't have the whole like, I'm going to tell everybody else in my life that I like this guy or this girl, and then it's going to be all these weird, awkward situations, which we do get with Nick and Jess later on in the series. Um, That does happen. But here, it's just this sort of acknowledgement. And that's where I think the writing here is kind of paralleling the show and the showrunners just like not really necessarily wanting to go there with them, but having to acknowledge that the chemistry is so crazy good, right? So they're like, yeah, the, re- the relationship is going to blur lines. Viewers, you need to be comfortable with that because that's what Nick and Jess have decided to do. Well, yeah, it's it's like their thinking parallels the writer's thinking of like, we're not going to actually get together because, you know, we can't. You know, like in a lot of ways, it's like Sam and Diane in that sense. Like, oh, we're discovering we're attracted to each other, but we are Wrong. Capital W, wrong for each other. Right, so because he puts together. nickels in tip jars, and that's the most inane thing ever because he is a bartender, so he lives on tips, so he should tip better. And that's like Zoe's or um, uh, Jess's side of their fight when they're like yelling over each other. And he's going off about how, well, nickels are the best tip because Thomas Jefferson is, it's the only money Thomas Jefferson is on, which yeah. he's also on the $2 bill. But okay. well, yeah. Then he goes on to say, Jess, are you saying that you're still on the fence about the Louisiana purchase? You know, because <laughs> she doesn't want the Jefferson currency. Yeah, it's, it's very, very good. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. Looking back on these, they really complement each other well. Like, yes. I don't have an MVP or a, this one was good and this one sucked. I love how Friends so much has that 90s rom-com energy where yeah. it's like, we need to talk about what's going on here. Like, I could totally swap out, you know, Jennifer Aniston for Meg Ryan in one of those movies where she's pacing around the living room talking to rosie o'donnell about what she should do you know like it's it's that kind of energy and the way like we said the office completely deconstructs that and says like no none of that this is going to be a show that's grounded in reality where people you know make little glances at each other and you know move things forward in slow motion and everything's messy and kind of slow and you know unsatisfying sometimes and then yeah you have New girl just being this sort of like, we've seen it all at this point. We don't know exactly what we're going to do, but we're just going to make sure we we get the characters and the humor right. And then, of course, Cheers is just so great for that simplicity of kind of going back where it all began and seeing like, yeah, this is where we, you know, all those other ones. Look, this wasn't the first will they, won't they ever. But you think of the those major couples, you know, Lucy and Desi were already together. Alice and Ralph were already together. You know, this was, you know, at least for a generation, like our first taste of this super long, protracted, uh, opposites attract kind of thing. And so it's just like they both, they, they all have their perfect little niche, you know? Yeah, no, you're, you're right. The, what I will say, though, in terms of like drop in, bang for your buck, best episode of television, just to watch and like have for pure enjoyment, the new girl episode. It was, it hit like on every level. There's, there's three plots going on. You've got the Nick and Jess one that we talked about. You got the Tug Romney thing going on with Schmidt. 
And then you've got the Winston th- of it all, right? So Winston is in this episode giving Nick really good advice on kind of how to be, you know, how he's being a fluffer. But when he's describing it, Winston's actually describing what's going on in his own relationship, which is kind of falling apart. Yeah. And we're just getting a little piece of that, that, you know, he and his girlfriend aren't really happy and they aren't really talking or having sex anymore. And so uh, something's going wrong. So you have all sorts of like really good moments as well as forwarding of stories that are sort of ongoing. That so like new girl for me mvp just on like watchability wonderfulness Fr- the friends episode is one of these iconic episodes i mean i think when we were talking about picking quintessential episodes we we couldn't do tension rising for Ross and Rachel and do any other episode other than this, right? Like there's other things that you definitely have to mention as honorable mentions, but this is the kiss. This is the coffee shop kiss. It's like four seasons. It was what they just kept showing and going back to. And in the flashbacks, um, she doesn't have trouble with the door. Mm -hmm. She just like throws the door open, right? So- so I think, yeah, my MVP is 100% New Girl, but I agree in terms of like what we're looking at of our five-act structure. All of these episodes are really, really good in what they're trying to do, which is move that needle forward while still keeping it as a will-they-won't-they situation. The tension is still rising. And each of them has, within their own little like historical chronology, right, been able to do that in a way that was a little bit different from what we did before. The Cheers episode we watched is Shelley Long's favorite episode. It's the episode where she gets to advocate for herself in the ways that you mentioned. Like she sets boundaries in that episode that go on to define their relationship in all the ways later on when the writer sort of turns Shelley Long into a nag. But so we're we're in a really lovely place in that the Cheers episodes are still kind of just having fun with they're going to get in a fight. They're maybe almost going to do something and then they won't. And there's a ton of them in that first season that follow that same pattern. So it was a little bit more challenging to pick an episode of Cheers because of that. Yeah. Well, and like we always talk about, the further back you go in time, the more episodic and less serialized the storytelling tends to be. So We're going to continue this in 10 episodes. Episode 30, we're going to be talking about the characters getting together. Lots lots to get into there. Let's set that aside for now. What are we talking about next week? Next week, the secret word is Paul Rubin guest appearances. We're going to watch Mork and Mindy season four, episode seven, long before we met. We're going to watch 227. Season 2, Episode 15, Toyland. We found Murphy Brown. Season 7, Episode 1, The Good Nephew. 30 Rock, Season 1, Episode 12, Black Tie. And finally, The Connors. Season 2, Episode 8, Lanford, Toilet of Sin. Yep, that'll be next time. And until then, we will consider this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Thank you for listening to The Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. 
And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The sitcom study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. Thank you.